Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. My name is Eric Rivenis. I'm guessing most of us listening to this podcast are fans of gangster history. We like hearing about life in another time, where people played by different sets of rules. Heck, I ran a tour company in the 90s, where I dressed up as Babyface Nelson and took people to sites of kidnappings, gunfights, and murders in the 1930s. It's fascinating stuff. Their escapades are exciting, and their downfalls are equally as satisfying. But every so often, a gangster of incredible notoriety lives to a ripe old age and beats the odds. And who better to beat the odds than a man who built a gambling empire? My guest today is Doug Swanson, award-winning journalist, investigative reporter for the Dallas Morning News, and author of Blood Aces, The Wild Ride of Benny Binion, the Texas gangster who created Vegas Poker. And not only was it a wild ride for Benny, but this book is a wild ride for readers as well. Doug Swanson, thank you for joining me. Oh, my pleasure, Eric. So I'll have to admit, I don't know much about Benny Binion. Where did you first hear about him? Well, I've been a newspaper reporter around Dallas for many, many years uh, and a police reporter in my early career. And I would hear some of the old cops talk about Benny Binion, who was a racketeer in Dallas back in the 30s and 40s. And uh, some of the old guys still knew him or knew about him. So I would just hear these stories and it, uh, it piqued my curiosity and I, I put it away for a while. And for a while, I mean many years. And then got back to it uh, sometime later and, and started looking into the life of Binion and found out he was this really fascinating character. Well, we all know Texas was a pretty wild and rugged place in the 1800s, but it was that way in the 1900s as well, when Benny Binion was first starting out. Can you talk a little bit about Texas and and what it was like at that time? 
Sure. Uh, Benny came of age in the early 1900s. He went out with his father, uh, who was a horse dealer, uh, across uh, rural Texas, and he learned to uh, to wheel and deal that way. He never really learned to read and write, but he learned to wheel and deal with his with his father. And then he fell in with some gamblers who would go from town to town around 1915 or so, and and uh, set up gambling operations in back alleys. And that's where Benny learned the gambling business. Then in uh, in the late 19s, early 1920s, he moved to El Paso. This was during Prohibition in El Paso, down on the Mexican border, was one of the great smuggling ports of entry uh, for uh, those who were running liquor and running drugs. And and, and Benny learned uh, the crime business there, came to Dallas in the 1920s, uh, still during Prohibition, and started importing moonshine into Dallas and selling it to the speakeasies. You know, people think of Dallas as this buttoned-down, conservative, business-oriented place, which it is now. But back then, it was, uh, as you say, it was really wild. I mean, there was there were shootouts on uh, Main Street downtown and uh, car bombs going off and all sorts of uh, wild criminal activity, and, and Benny was right there with it. You write in your book about how Texas was a little far behind the rest of the country. Still is, some would say, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> but, but it's an interesting setup for his story. He's kind of living in the 1920s, and 30s version of the Wild West. Yeah, except for the the big cities, I mean, Dallas, Houston, San Antonio. You know, Texas is obviously a big place, and most of it was rural. And uh, it, it took a long time for that section of that bad, that vast swath of Texas to to come into the 20th century. And that's what I think a lot of people don't understand that that it really was not the frontier really, but it, it was, it was still wild. It was still not just rural, but it was untamed out there. And he, that's where he learned the business was out there with these guys just going from town to town on horseback and then, you know, in carts setting up these operations. And, and Texas was not by any stretch of the imagination, an urban state back then. Uh, and, and it was very much the wild west. So Benny Binion, as you mentioned, learns the art of horse trading from his father. And there were some tricks to make sure that these horses looked healthier than they actually were. Right. If you had a horse, for example, that was uh, sluggish, you could put uh, small, pe- small pebbles in its ears, and that would make it jump around and seem, uh, seem like it was a very active, uh, energetic horse. So you could, you could sell it that way. If you had a horse that was uh, sway-backed, uh, you could uh, take a, a quill, feather quill, and, and blow some air into its back and uh, make it look much more healthy. So, yeah, he learned all these tricks when he was out there running around with these guys. And speaking of health, his own health as a very young boy was, was not so good. And I'd venture that no one would have believed that this sickly little kid would rise to the, to the criminal heights that he eventually did. Yeah, he had pneumonia several times uh, as a young child, and uh, that's how he ended up out on the road. His father looked at him one day when he was about uh, 10 or 11 and said, well, he's going to die anyway. I'm just going to take him with me. So that's how he ended up going with his father out uh, selling horses and then falling in with these gamblers. And that's why he never uh, learned to read or write, never learned his multiplication tables, because he was pulled out of school in the second grade and never went back. So while Benny was a wild kid, his brother Jack was even wilder. 
Yeah, they were they were a pretty wild family, and and Jack was the uh, I wouldn't say he was the black sheep, but uh, he was the one who was really crazy. And uh, Jack uh, died in a plane crash in Dallas uh, at a very young age, and and Benny really never got over it. This was once uh, Benny had established himself as a a racketeering gambling businessman in Dallas, and and Jack helped him out and you know banged some heads for him and all that, and then suddenly Jack was dead, and. Uh, it really haunted Benny for the rest of his life. So he benefits like many young aspiring criminals from prohibition. And the fact that he's living in Dallas, which was a pretty lawless place, really made it the perfect storm. Oh, I think so. I mean, Dallas was notorious at the time for uh, the number of speakeasies, especially downtown. And uh, Benny uh, sold his moonshine to a lot of them, but he never really uh, thought he was making much money in the uh, in the bootlegging business, although he did kill a uh, rival bootleg operator, shot him, uh, and uh, pleaded guilty to that, but never served a day in jail because he uh, he was uh, very good friends with the district attorney, and that was Benny's way all through his uh, time in in Dallas and later Las Vegas. He he made friends with the powerful people. He paid bribes. His best friend in Dallas. Uh, for a long time, was the most powerful man in the sheriff's department. And that's, that's how Benny got along. But he wanted to get out of the bootlegging business and into the gambling business. So that's, that's where he made his first foothold in Dallas, was in, a, in an operation called the Policy Game, which was really a, a numbers operation. And he ran that for many years very successfully, killed off his rivals and, uh, and paid off the, the, the powerful with bribes. As you talk about in your book, he, he got his feet wet in bootlegging, but admitted that he never made much money at it. And it was the gambling business that really created his fortune. Yeah, and there were two stages to the gambling. Uh, as I said, he started out with this numbers operation. The clients for that were mostly black. Uh, in fact, probably almost all of them were black. So it was a white man, managed by whites, but the, the customers were black. There wasn't a tremendous amount of money into it, and it. And Benny wanted to get into the dice games in Dallas. Every every downtown hotel had a dice game going, but the people who controlled that, and by that I mean uh, the people in government in Dallas, did not want him in the dice games because he was too violent, and they were afraid that uh, that would cause some problems that way. But he got a big break in 1936, which was the Texas Centennial. That's, that was the 100th anniversary of uh, the independence of the Republic of Texas. Dallas was going to throw a big exhibition for that. They put up a lot of buildings down in this area called Fair Park and uh, had pageants and uh, historical shows and all that. But they were losing business to Fort Worth, which is 35 miles west of Dallas. So Fort Worth had some topless cowgirl shows, so all the people were going over there. And the city fathers in Dallas got very upset about this and decided to uh, deregulate prostitution and gambling in Dallas. The laws stayed on the books, but they stopped enforcing them. This gave Binion his entree into the dice games in Dallas. He, he moved in, and he took over just about every big game in town in 1936. Could you explain how these policy games worked? Sure. It's basically a numbers game. You, he would send his runners out across town, and uh, if you were a customer, you would pay a dime or so and pick out three lucky numbers. Then the runner would take the numbers back to the 
to the uh, headquarters and they would throw them all in a barrel or put them on a spinning wheel and then pick out the winning numbers for that day. So if you bet a dime, you might, you might win $10 and which was, you know, big money back in the early 1930s in the depression. But it was, you know, it, it, it was low stakes. If you're, if you're running an operation, a gambling operation, you're not going to make a whole lot of money selling chances for a dime. And that's why Benny wanted to get into the, into the bigger end of it. Benny Binion owed a lot of his early success to his mentor, Howard Diamond. Could you talk a little bit about Diamond and, and their relationship? Yeah. Uh, Diamond was, uh, was uh, sort of a patrician gambler in town and uh, ran some of the dice game operations. And that's where Benny really learned that trade. He, he was uh, kind of a freelance muscle for Diamond and helped out and parked cars and all that. Uh, but you know, really learned at the feet of Diamond. Then Diamond uh, had cancer and, and killed himself. And shortly after that, that's when, when Benny um, moved into the dice operations. But, but Diamond was a mentor to Benny, and he, and he showed Benny how to run a, a classy operation, you know, a place where uh, people were treated right and the surroundings were nice, and, and it wasn't just a low-end backroom gambling operation. They had good drinks and good food and, and good furnishings, and Benny learned, really learned that lesson there. And speaking of high-class operations, Benny Binion becomes involved with a top-class place called Top O'Hill. Yeah, a little later on uh, in the 30s, Top O'Hill was a casino west of Dallas, between Dallas and Fort Worth, and it was up on a hill. That uh, made it uh, resistant to police raids because once the police got there, they would have to go through a gate down at the bottom of the hill, and there were guards down there. And the guards would press a button, and that would set off an alarm up in the casino on top of the hill. And the patrons, the gamblers, would escape through underground tunnels. And the dealers would fold up the tables, like Murphy beds, into the wall and uh, hide the cards and the dice and all that. And by the time the cops made it up the hill, the the dealers would be standing in a corner with a hymn book uh, singing church hymns. So they never got busted. It was a really popular place. Uh, all the famous people, many famous people who came through Dallas, movie stars, uh, would go out to Top of Hill. I talked to a dancer. He used to dance out there, a woman named Willie Stelmacher. And uh, she said that she would see Benny out there a lot. She also saw Bonnie and Clyde out there one night. It was just the place to be in Dallas in the 1930s and 1940s. Again, it was a very fancy casino where people with money liked to go. And uh, people like Marlena Dietrich would go out there. Uh, Other movie stars who would come through town uh, would go there. If you needed a prostitute, a high-end prostitute, you could find one atop a hill. Gamblers, I mean, not gamblers, boxers would, uh, pro boxers would go out there and work out for the crowds. They had bands. They had uh, comedians. It It was quite the show place. Don Amici, you mentioned, liked to gamble there, too. Yeah, that's what Benny said. He said Don Amici, who played Alexander Graham Bell in the movies when he was through town, he'd go out there. Uh, I mean, really, it was the place to be. It was really fun to read about Bonnie and Clyde's appearance at the club and the fact that they came a little underdressed. Yeah, Bonnie and Clyde, uh, those of, uh, of you who have seen the movie with uh, Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty, they were not glamorous in, in reality, like Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty, they, Bonnie and Clyde were just two kids 
up from the slums of West Dallas. And even with all the money they were robbing from banks, they still came off as kids from the slums. And when they were out there in this crowd of uh, really rich people and society people and movie stars, they stood out. And they didn't stand out in a, in a good way, really. They stood out as, as what they were, which was a, a couple of really low-end uh, uh, scufflers. And so that's, that's how Willie saw them. There were all these uh, women in furs and fancy hats. And then, and, then, and then there was Bonnie Parker over there in her slightly dirty, uh, wrinkled uh, clothes and, and just looking like someone who didn't belong. I want to ask you about Lois Green. He's a pretty colorful character in your book and, and one of Binion's right-hand men. And Green had quite a criminal empire of his own, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Uh, Lois Green, his real name was D. Lois, but they called him Lois Green. He was a, a very tough guy and would uh, uh, kill you just as soon as look at you, although he wouldn't kill you right away. Uh, he'd often make you uh, dig your own grave and then shoot you in the stomach where you were mortally wounded but still alive. Then he'd roll you into the grave and start uh, piling the dirt on top of you while you were still breathing. That's how Lois Green got his kicks. But he also had a, a criminal enterprise going. He had, he had drug sellers working for him, prostitutes working for him, armed robbery gangs working for him. He was, he was quite the criminal entrepreneur in Dallas, and, and he worked for Binion for a long time. And I guess you have to probably be a little extra tough with a first name like Lois. I guess so. I guess anybody who made fun of Lois's name uh, only did it once, I think. <laughs> so tell us, if you would, about Herbert Noble and his notorious feud with Betty Binion. It's a really fascinating story. Sure. Herbert Noble was a rival gambling operator in Dallas in the 1930s and 1940s. And the way it worked with Binion was uh, he would let other people have their own operations, but they would have to pay him a percentage. And as things went along, he upped his percentage, he upped his rate to about 25%. Herbert Noble did not want to pay that much. Uh, so Binion ordered that Herbert Noble be eliminated. He sent his henchmen, including Lois Green, after Herbert Noble. But Herbert Noble was either the luckiest or the unluckiest guy you ever met, and, and they, would, they would hit him with their bullets, but they would only wound him. They tried time and time again. Herbert Noble was a pilot. He had a couple of uh, single-engine planes, and they tried packing explosives in the engines of his planes, and the explosives blew, but, they, but the, it blew before the plane took off, so Herbert was unhurt. At one point, they shot him uh, on the porch of his uh, house, wounded him pretty badly. He went to the hospital, and he was on the fourth floor of the hospital in Dallas, and uh, one of Binion's guys uh, got a, a, a rifle and stood out in the courtyard of the, rif with, courtyard of the hospital and fired through the windows with his rifle. They decided they were going to blow up his car one night, so they put the, uh, the explosives under his car and in the engine, but Herbert Noble decided to switch cars with his wife that morning, and he drove off in his wife's car, and when his wife came out, she started the car, blew up, killed her. And this drove Herbert Noble insane. He uh, went out and bought a bunch of chihuahuas to patrol his yard because they would bark if they saw anyone. And he had peacocks patrolling his yard because they would squawk if they saw anyone. He walked around with a rifle all the time. And he just went crazy. But they tried and tried and tried again to kill him and, and 13 times. They tried and were unsuccessful. 
I know you mentioned the reason for the feud. Binion had upped the percentage of Noble's payment, and Noble didn't like that. But was there something deeper going on? I mean, Binion was relentless in trying to kill Harry Noble. Binion killed his wife, and then Noble went crazy for crying out loud. I mean, that would be revenge enough (laughs) for most men. I think so. It was a Noble's theory that Binion uh, had a deep animus for Noble because Noble would never bow down to Binion, as, as Noble put it, that he didn't treat Binion with the necessary obeisance. But once Noble's wife was killed, that's that really sent Noble over the edge. And, and at this point, I'm getting a little ahead of the story here, but at this point, Binion had moved to Las Vegas. This was after 1946. And he bought a big house outside of town on Bonanza Road. So one of the uh, Dallas policemen who knew Herbert Noble went out to his ranch one day north of Dallas and found Noble working on one of his airplanes, drove up, got closer, and saw that uh, Noble was, in fact, welding uh, bombing racks onto the wings of his airplane. And he had two bombs with him. One was a napalm bomb. One was a conventional explosive. And in his pocket, he had a map to Binion's house in Las Vegas. And Noble confessed to this officer that his plan was to fly his airplane to Tucson and refuel and then fly to Las Vegas when he knew Binion and his family would be home and and drop these bombs on Binion's house in Las Vegas. But the police uh, stopped this from happening. So that was the end of that plot. They really do do things bigger in Texas, don't they? Well, it becomes after a while almost like one of these, you know, Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner cartoons. I mean, the, the things go off, but they don't kill anybody, and it just it becomes uh, really absurd after a while. Back after a word from our sponsors. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. 
Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws. I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. And we have returned to the interview. So you mentioned Binion moves from Texas to Las Vegas, and it's a pretty interesting set of circumstances which led to Binion's move. Yeah, I mentioned that he, he owned the, uh, the local authorities. He paid them off. They were his friends. But in the late 1940s, he lost his support at the courthouse. A new sheriff was elected. A new district attorney was elected. And Binion was told, you, you get out of town or you're going to be killed or sent to prison. So he uh, loaded up his Cadillac, allegedly with a million dollars in cash in the trunk, and uh, got two of his favorite henchmen, one of whom was named R.D. Matthews, uh, whom I talked to at length, and went out to Las Vegas, started his operation out there. This was 1946, early 1947. He was arriving at about the same time as all these other mobsters who were coming out to Vegas, uh, Bugsy Siegel among them. They were part of this great wave in the late 1940s and, and early 1950s who arrived in the Las Vegas, which was then just a little town in the desert, and they turned it into to the modern gambling mecca that, that it became. Did, did he ever talk about Bugsy Siegel? Oh, he loved Bugsy Siegel. In fact, he went to the opening of the Horseshoe, not the Horseshoe, excuse me, the Flamingos, uh, uh, Siegel's place, in uh, December of 1946. And I, and I call him in the book the Will Rogers of mobsters because he loved all these guys. He never said a bad word about them publicly. Uh, and he would go on and on about... Uh, what a great guy Bugsy Siegel was, or Meyer Lansky, or any of these others who uh, who were out there in Vegas and elsewhere. Uh, Binion had nothing but uh, good things to say about any of them. Can you can you talk about Binion's early forays into Las Vegas? What were some of the clubs that he owned? Yeah, he started uh, down there on Fremont Street downtown uh, with the Las Vegas Club, 
and it was not a very fancy place, uh, full of uh, you know cowboys and desert rats and the occasional client who would drive over from California. But it was uh, it wasn't a, a really classy joint. He had another one uh, in the same neighborhood that wasn't very good, and he was thinking about getting out of the gambling business actually in, in the early 1950s uh, and moving to Montana where he had a ranch. But his wife, Teddy, didn't like the ranch, so uh, she insisted they stay in Vegas. And Binion uh, went downtown and bought a casino that had been closed, uh, the El Dorado, and in the early 1950s, uh, turned it into uh, the Horseshoe, which was his big, well, it was the only casino, but it, it was his, his trademark as the years went on. It was the best place to gamble in Las Vegas. So that's really how he got started. Now, Betty Binion has become almost mythological in Las Vegas history. What about some of these stories that are still told today? Can you separate some of the facts from the fiction? Sure. In fact, separating the fact from the fiction was uh, was one of the biggest challenges of the book. But he, he started the horseshoe, as I said, and it was a pure stone gambling joint. And you could go in there, and if you had the money, if you had a million dollars in a suitcase, you could walk in and drop a million dollars on one roll of the dice, if that's what you wanted to do. He didn't have any bands or comedians. You know, the Rat Pack wasn't hanging out at the Horseshoe. It was not an entertainment venue. He always said he didn't want his money blowing out the end of some guy's trumpet. It was just a place you went to gamble. And so that's where the high rollers went. When you wanted to, when you really wanted to gamble, that's, you ended up at the Horseshoe. So there was that. The second part of it is that Benny loved to give away money. And he gave it away to just about anybody. If you were a broken down old cowboy coming through town, he'd help you out. But he also gave it away to hospitals and schools and churches and all sorts of uh, charitable organizations. So he became a very popular man in Vegas that way. So it wasn't long before people in the city really began to respect and love Benny Binion. And that's a pretty common tactic for gangsters of that era, uh, trying to clean up their image. Al Capone would set up soup kitchens to win over the hearts of the people in Chicago. Yeah, and I think that's one of the fascinating things about that whole culture. The thing with Binion was uh, that he he got along with these these other mobsters. They respected him, and and he respected them. Like Al Capone, uh, he got nailed for tax evasion and was sent to federal prison, sent to Leavenworth for a few years, lost control of his casino for those few years to the mobsters and came back to Vegas after he got out and had to take it back. But, you know, Vegas was a wide open society. And if you were a racketeer, if you were a mobster, if you were a gambler, really you were welcome there because you you couldn't go to the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and learn how to run a casino in those days like you can now. And the people who knew how to run casinos were the mobsters and the gangsters. So Binion was one of them, and, and in very short time, he was a very well-respected member of the community. You mentioned his time in, in prison for tax evasion. One thing Binion always did well, and you alluded to this before, was to make friends in law enforcement in the courts. And that was really a, a key to his success, wasn't it? I mean, he was able to escape prison time for most of his early life. Yeah, he didn't just make friends with them. He bribed them. Uh, back in his early days in, in Dallas, he estimated that, that he spent $600,000 a year just on bribes. So he spread the money around. 
he made no secret about that. He once said it takes a pretty good man to make you bribe him. And that was just the way he, he did it. And if he wasn't bribing outright, he was, he was establishing these associations. Uh, I was looking at his prison file from Leavenworth, which was like 300 pages. And in it was this really remarkable letter from the federal chief of parole for all of the state of Nevada. And he was urging the Bureau of Prisons to let Benny out early because Binion was uh, loved in Las Vegas and his family needed him and he was a great man. And this letter just went on and on and on and on for pages about uh, what a great person Benny Binion was. And I thought, this is really odd. I've never seen a letter like this from a federal government official on behalf of an imprisoned felon. I just couldn't figure it out. And then I dug a little deeper and found out that the uh, federal official who had written this letter had a, had a nighttime job. He had a second job. And his second job was he was chief of security at the Horseshoe, Binion's Casino. <laughs> so this was just another way that, that Binion got his arms around people who who might be his enemies. He he pulled them into the fold. And that was his uh, his M.O. Uh, throughout his, his life. So while we're on the subject of the federal government and Binion's prison time for tax evasion, did, did Binion have a relationship with J. Edgar Hoover? Hoover seemed to really hone in on some criminals to the point of obsession, while with others, he looked the other way. What, what did he think about Benny Binion? Well, that was one of the things that surprised me. I found these memos uh, from uh, meetings that Hoover, the FBI director, would have with his staff uh, every week. And in these meetings, he repeatedly discussed Benny Binion and how, uh, how they were going to nail Benny Binion for tax evasion. I found that really odd. And so I looked a little further into it and found out it was not just J. Edgar Hoover. It was the attorney general of the United States at the time. And it was the president of the United States at the time, Harry Truman. All of them were interested in putting Benny Binion away for tax evasion. The reason for that was there had been a scandal in what was then called the Bureau of Internal Revenue, now the Internal Revenue Service, with some shakedown operations and bribes and agents being bought off. So Truman and uh, other government officials were really eager to show that they were uh, cracking down on tax cheats. So they wanted to put away some high profile people. And Benny Binion was one of them. But I was really surprised to see that that the pursuit of Benny Binion uh, for tax evasion went all the way to the White House. So Binion, as you mentioned, went to prison and the horseshoe fell under control of other underworld figures. How did that happen? He had to sell off part of it to some of the mobsters, the local mobsters, and they came in and they did what mobsters did then in Las Vegas. They started skimming money off the operation. Uh, They were, at one point, they claimed taking a million dollars a year out of the horseshoe. That's just something Binion felt he had to do to, uh, to preserve his family and keep his ranch and all of that. Once he got out after a few years, his sentence was for five years, but I think he served uh, less than three. He got out and he, and he put some money together and he, and he bought his interest back from the mobsters and, and then controlled the horseshoe thereafter. It was a family operation. You know, it was a very tough time for him. It was a tough time for his family. Uh, one of his daughters, Barbara, was uh, arrested because uh, she had just set up an armed robbery ring that was going to uh, try to uh, rob some of the biggest names in Vegas while Benny was in prison. So that was difficult. But he came back, and he came back strong. 
So Binion controls the horseshoe with an iron fist. The few gamblers who decide to cheat uh, really get taught a lesson by Binion's men. Yeah, he didn't cheat at the horseshoe. I mean, at other casinos, if you cheated, they'd often call the cops and have you hauled off. But uh, they didn't call the cops at Binion's at the horseshoe. They took you out back and they beat you within an inch of your life. That's just the way it worked. They had a little security office behind the horseshoe and they take you back there and uh, they had a lost and found uh, area for uh, people who had left uh, crutches and canes at the casino and they would take out these canes and they would use them to beat the, uh, beat the people they thought were cheating. Uh, there was one case where there was an individual, they didn't think he was cheating, but they thought he was causing a disturbance and they were hustling him outside. He kicked in a plate glass window. So one of the uh, horseshoe employees shot him to death shot him in the head on the sidewalk out in front of the horseshoe. Now, there was some talk and some belief on the part of the authorities that the person who had done the shooting was uh, Ted Binion, Benny Binion's son. But a pit boss named Walt took the rap, pleaded guilty to manslaughter, never served a day in prison. And that was that. And in researching the book, I tried to find the pit boss, Walt, for a long time. And finally, after more than a year of, of, of searching, I found him down in Florida and went down to talk to him, hoping to get the real story of this uh, shooting and whether he's the one who did it or whether Ted Binion did it. And, uh, you know, 30 years later, Walt, the pit boss, was still very reluctant to talk about what had happened. In fact, refused to do it because he said uh, people's lives might be at stake. Even after all those decades, uh, someone was still afraid of the Binions and people were always afraid of the Binions. They were respected and they were loved by many, but you did not cross the Binions. You didn't cheat at the horseshoe and you did not cross the Binions because if you did, bad things would happen to you. The fact that he was scared to death to talk to you is, is just crazy. It, it was, it was very strange. It was, it was almost comical. I mean, we were sitting in this really sleazy little diner outside Tampa and uh, he, he looked out the window and he's looking around and he says, you know, I just uh, people's lives are at stake here. I just can't talk. And I, it, was, it was it was funny in a way and, and, you know, slightly chilling in a way that somebody was still that afraid after all these years. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the infamous poker tournament between Johnny Moss and Nick the Greek arranged by Benny Binion. Now, you have a pretty interesting take about what has has become a really legendary five-month match in 1949. Yeah, the story is, as you say, that, that these two great gamblers, Nick the Greek and Johnny Moss, Johnny Moss was one of the great poker players ever, got together in Las Vegas in Binion's Casino and played for months and months and, you know, going back and forth and back and forth and Finally, Johnny Moss walked away with the pot and, and went over to the supposedly to the uh, to the tables in Binion's Casino and, and lost almost all of it. Now, there are a number of poker scholars out there who have delved far deeper into it than I, who believe that there's a really good chance that this never happened. Or at least if it happened, it was not the huge endurance marathon that, that has been portrayed. And the reason... Uh, they think it didn't happen was because no one has ever been able to find a photograph of this. There was no newspaper coverage that anyone has been able to find uh, of this. Benny Binion, near the end of his life, 
gave a long interview to an oral historian at the University of Nevada. And this interview in transcript form goes on for uh, almost 100 pages. There is no mention of this big face-off between Johnny Moss and Nick the Greek. Uh, Johnny Moss mentions it in his autobiography, but he says he says it occurred, occurred at the Horseshoe, but he gives a date uh, before the Horseshoe was even in existence. So there are a lot of questions out there about whether this ever really occurred, or at the very least, whether it occurred at the scale that it's been built up to have occurred at. So it's one of those mysteries. It's interesting when thinking about the story, how it's morphed over the years. There really seems to be a theme running through Binion's life, which is exaggeration. Everything is exaggerated. Yeah, as I said, part of the problem was separating fact from fiction here. There are a lot of stories that the family likes to tell uh, about Benny that just don't bear out. And, and I understand why they do it. I mean, Benny was a character and the family had a sort of a myth to promote. And one of the, one of the shorter examples is uh, Benny Binion was driving in Dallas one night and got into a wreck, got out of his car and 14 guys piled out of the other car. So it must've been a big car, right? And <laughs> 14 guys are coming at him and he rips the bumper off his own car and just lays them out one by one with this bumper. And when he's done, he's there standing, holding the bumper, and there are 14 dudes out cold on the streets of Dallas. And the, the family has told this story again and again and again. But if you go back and look at the record, what really happened was, yeah, Benny got into a car wreck, and he did pull the bumper off his own car, and he did hit the other driver. It was one person, and she was a middle-aged lady. Uh, so that was the end of that. Oh. The, there were there were these wild tales that I would hear them and I would think, wow, that's that's a great story. That's an entire chapter. And then I would check it out and it would, you know, it would just all fall apart. So this this lore, this whole catalog of lore has been built up around Binion. And a lot of it is true. A lot of it uh, is questionable. And a lot of it is just, you know, fable. So Benny Binion is most well known today for creating the World Series of Poker. Can you explain how that came about? Yeah, there was a, a little tournament uh, in Reno in 1969 that, that Benny went to see, and it brought in some of the best poker players in the country. And, and keep in mind that poker back then was very much an underground operation, that you were just about everywhere except Nevada. You were violating the law if you uh, were playing poker. But this tournament brought in some of the big players. Benny went up to see it. And then he and his son, Jack, had an idea that maybe they should have one of those tournaments at, at the Horseshoe. He's bringing a handful of players, the big names like Doyle Brunson and Amarillo Slim, and have them play poker. People could watch. And then you know, once they were through watching, the people, the, the spectators could, could wander over to the, to the tables at the Horseshoe and lose some more money. That, that was the general idea. It was just supposed to be a kind of a publicity stunt, a way to bring in people, a uh, slow time of year. And, uh, you know, boost business a little bit. And Benny, Binion never thought it was going to become this multi-million dollar international spectacle. His, his whole, his entire ambition for it was to one day maybe have, you know, 50 players going. But it just started out with a, with a handful. Now, throughout Binion's life, he was most likely involved in many murders, according to your book. 
was there ever any attempt to hold him accountable for all of this, this violence? Well, in Dallas, he only admitted to uh, killing two people. One was the, uh, the rival bootlegger and the other was a rival numbers operator. And he did not serve time for either of those because, as I said, he owned the courts, he owned, uh, he owned the authorities. And then after that, you know, he had staff who could kill people for him. He didn't have to do it himself. He had plenty of people who, who were willing to work for him. And there was all sorts of suspicion over the years that, that he was behind killings. Uh, you know, Herbert Noble, whom we had talked about earlier, uh, the, the rival operator, they tried, as I said, 13 times to kill him. Uh, finally, they uh, put a bomb under his mailbox. And when he came out to get his mail one day, they blew him up. That was the 14th time. They finally got him on the 14th time. Now, everybody in the world believes that Benny Binion was behind that. But it's still an open case in Denton County, Texas, where it occurred, because the murder was officially unsolved. Uh, there were plenty of cases where the authorities thought Benny Binion was behind the death, but they never could prove it. There was a case in the 1970s in, in Las Vegas where Benny Binion's landlord, very well-respected lawyer in town, a politician, former FBI agent, uh, was involved in a dispute uh, with Benny Binion over a new lease. And uh, the lawyer went out and got in his car in a parking garage in downtown Las Vegas, started it, and the car blew up, killed him. Police, for a long time, suspected Benny Binion was behind that, but they were never able to paint it on him. And he dies at age 85 in 1989. Now, rarely in my recollection, in the history of American crime, is there anyone who got away with so much and never really had to face any real punishment? How do you think that happened? I mean, he was treated as a celebrity at the end of his life. Meyer Lansky led a long, prosperous life, but his secret was to stay out of the limelight, not bathe in it. Right. And that's one of the things that intrigued me about Binion. Well, I don't think his arc can be matched in American criminal justice. I mean, here's a guy who started out from nowhere, from backwater Texas, and became a street thug, and then a, a small-time criminal operator, and then a big-time criminal operator, and then a big-time racketeer, and then a very successful businessman. And then a beloved uh, member of the community. There's just no one like that. I mean, at his, in his birthday party, I think it was his 83rd part birthday, they rented the uh, basketball arena at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And about 18,000 people showed up, and they were on their feet at the end of the night chanting, Benny, Benny, Benny. I mean, people just loved him, uh, in part because he was very approachable. I mean, you could walk into the horseshoe. He didn't even have an office. He kept his office was the restaurant at the horseshoe. He had a table there and just about anybody could walk up and talk to him. So he was he was not aloof at all. In fact, to the contrary, he he was uh, had, had very much had the common touch. He gave away, as I said, a whole bunch of money. He had a civic spirit to him. And uh, what was always said about Benny was uh, he was the best friend you could ever have and the worst enemy you could ever have. I still meet people uh, when I've gone out and talked about this book who knew Benny or worked for him, and they are extremely loyal to him. People speak about him in very passionate terms. Many people loved him. Now, you can make the argument that if you didn't love him, he might be dead because, you know, as I said, you, you didn't mess with the Binions. But he engendered a tremendous amount of loyalty and respect 
just by the way he did business and by giving away a bunch of money and by treating everyone as they deserve to be treated. It didn't matter if you were uh, the most powerful politician in town or you were just a tourist who'd scraped together a few bucks and managed to get out to Las Vegas on the Greyhound bus. He treated everybody the same. And, you know, people responded to that. There's so many crazy, interesting stories in your book that we don't have time to talk about here. But for those who want to learn more about you or your book, where would you like to point them? Well, I have a website. It's www.dougjswanson.com. I don't tend it as often as I should, but uh, anyone who wants to send me an email, uh, I'm at uh, dougjswanson at gmail.com. The book's available still. It's out in paperback. You can get it at uh, you know all your finer bookstores or Amazon or places like that. And I, I love to hear from readers. I hear from a lot of people who knew Binion and, and want to share stories about him. So I, I love to hear those things. But uh, I'm happy to uh, to talk to anyone who wants to talk about Benny or or writing or anything else. I'm I'm still in Dallas. I work for the Dallas Morning News. Although right now I'm, I'm teaching at the University of Texas at Austin, teaching journalism. But uh, you know I'm still around and uh, and happy to hear from anyone. Thank you for taking the time today to talk with me. Oh, thank you, Eric. It was a lot of fun. And this has been the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Ribbonis, and I hope you have a spectacular week. Good. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.